I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit. Welcome to the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we hope to take you through a journey to become more inspired and aware of how design can be used to create the conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. I'm here with Amani Day, a designer with Gensler's Detroit office. In her daily work, Amani strives to be an agent of positive and inclusive change in Detroit as the city moves forward. She relocated from Brooklyn to Detroit in 2015 to focus on community-oriented design projects. Well, welcome, Imani, to the Detroit City Design Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. It's very cool. Well, it's great to have a young designer from Gensler, which is a a major firm, not just in Detroit, but internationally. And you're also an associate professor at the University of Detroit Mercy. Yeah, that was an exciting new-ish experience for me at the University of Detroit. I actually kind of just filled in one semester for Tad Heiger Gerken. He's I never say his last name correctly, but it was a really super cool experience. Great students, great work coming out of that school. So yeah, I was excited to take over for him just because he was in Poland. Right. For one yeah. Well, maybe you'll be back at some yeah, point. Yeah, maybe. So yeah. you're a relatively early in your career. Mm-hmm. And if you could just tell our audience a little bit about what drew you to architecture and How have you come to be practicing here in Detroit? Sure. So I kind of always start with my parents in terms of how I got into architecture, only because my dad is, he's an artist and really a graphic designer, illustrator. So I have that artistic background in him, but my mom is extremely technical. She's not an architect, but she is a writer and an editor and a linguistics fanatic. So I got a little bit of the writing and the technical aspects of my interest in architecture from them, really. I was exposed to it kind of late in the game, I'd say, probably in high school. Um, I was doing a program at Princeton, and one of the kids on, like, in a roundtable discussion talking about kind of what we wanted to do career-wise, really was just like, hey, I want to be an architect. And by the time it got back around to me, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, me too. Like, that makes a lot more sense than um, me going into either, I think I wanted to go into psychology or I did kind of want to go into just visual arts for a while. So it was a good combination of just creative expression and being able to have I think I work well under appropriate constraints. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So architecture really helps focus that creativity into something real and then create those environments for people that can be really special. So that's kind of how I got into architecture. So from that point in high school, I just was diving headfirst into everything I could find. So I went to a college prep program at Carnegie Mellon the summer after and then ended up at Cornell for my bachelor's and That sort of sent me into my New York stint, which I'm Mm -hmm. technically from New York and New Jersey by way of Atlanta, but I kind of went back into the city to work for Robert Stern first to give me one of the best introductions into architectural design, just the foundation, I think was really, could not have asked for a better foundation just to understand one, the profession, but two, just kind of the rigor of the profession and understanding the professional world just through like the father of Pomo, right? Right. (laughs) It's not one end of the spectrum, but somewhere in sort of traditional, I think, just intro 
for me. And then moving from there, a couple of years later, I went to Diller's Cafidio, which is on the other side of whatever spectrum I'm talking about, <laughs> and really just getting into experimental design and never repeating yourself and mm-hmm. really trying to find my own design voice in that, in between those two experiences, was just I could not have asked for two better first experiences to give me the perspective to know that I fall somewhere in the middle. So what's been the difference to you in your career between working in New York versus working in Detroit? The Detroit story really is interesting because I did not come up with it on my own, but I was just a little over the New York design scene and New York in general, just how expensive and how little you feel sometimes in New York. So, you know, David Olga, I think David Alade, um, who works with Century Partners, he was starting Century Partners when we first started dating and was like, I'm going to go to Detroit. And I was like, you're nuts. I'll meet you back in New York whenever (laughs) you visit. Like I was not a cheerleader for Detroit yet, but he brought me along for a couple of visits and I met up with people like Carl Bolifer or Tiffany Brown met me the first few times I came here and just knocked it out of the park. They were like, this is our city. We're working. We're doing amazing things here. There's so much potential and opportunity here for a young designer. And they were so supportive before I even wanted anything from them. <laughs> like I was looking for a job, but I was really just there exploring and seeing where I might be able to fit in. And even before that, not even seeing if I wanted to come there, just there as a visitor. So I always say that Detroit really welcomed me. And those people, those first few people were crucial because they were so interested in helping me be comfortable here. And to this day, I still know them very well. And they're some of my best friends in the city just because those relationships never really ended. They just started when when I visited and just continued. So I ended up thinking that Detroit was the best next place for me from New York, just because I think in New York, there's so many huge names that, and there's a bunch of other names too, but I think the architect in New York is where I really wanted to work and I wanted to study under very specific types of design and people. And I got that experience and I felt kind of satiated there. I was cool with that. But at some point I thought, I'm always going to be working for someone else. I'm not going to really be able to take ownership of these projects as quickly as I'd like to. And I just saw much more opportunity in Detroit. I think there's so much more impact to be made by young designers here. Detroit allows you to be a part of the growth of the city as Mm -hmm. opposed to New York, kind of just like you're bottom feeding, you're trying to survive, and that's really it. But Detroit has given me an opportunity to really hone in on what my design styles are. So what are some of the opportunities you've been afforded here in Detroit as a young creative? Gensler has allowed me to say, hey, I really care about Detroit public schools. I want to do it this way. And Gensler has been very supportive of that. Or I'm meeting different entrepreneurs along the way that I just kind of made friends with as we moved, like Roslyn of Detroit is the New Black, or even Melissa Butler of the Lit Bar, or people who work in the city of Detroit where you just don't have the same access to that huge of a figure in New York. You might, but it takes a while. It takes much longer. you got to be in different social circles. There's like millions of more people. So it's not even like a, a difference in ease. And you think about the years that you've been here, is there a project or, you know, you mentioned uh, Melissa Butler in the Lip Bar. I know you were involved in, in her physical store. 
you know, is there some projects that really speak to you about that potential in Detroit, the that opportunity to experiment and, and to make a difference? Yeah. So for the lip bar, Melissa, I had met her by way of another friend that I met early on. Um, and she just kind of called me out of the blue and said, hey, I really want to work on a flagship store. I know you're a designer. Can you help me? And Melissa said, I want to work with a black woman. I have this much money. I'm you know, willing to do these things, but I want to work with you as an individual. So independently, I had to kind of make a decision and take a step away from Gensler just for this project, but it's a manageable size. It was a client that I just really could not say no to as one of my first independent real clients. I admire her for taking a a leap of faith in me and allowing me to kind of step off and work with her in that way. So I'd say the Lip Bar is a really, really exciting project for me because it's proof that you can do things here. Right. It's possible to get things done here where, again, I have tons of friends in New York who are working independently, who have worked on projects smaller, bigger than the Lip Bar, but it's taken them years to get things done. And that's not true of all places in New York, but I'm just thinking of the possibilities here as a relatively small space with a high impact, great brand, and really just a super inclusive brand, just really focusing on beauty, but coming from such a good voice. Melissa has such a strong-minded view and vision for what that store really wanted to look like. So it was a really fun project working with her. But I think it's one of my favorites just because it pushed me. You know, like before that moment, I wasn't sure that I could execute or that I could make it through the permitting process on my own or that I could do various different parts of that project. She wanted swings in the space, which we got the swings, but it threw a wrench in things. So those really fun experimental, as we're talking about design ideas and features are really important, but they're scary sometimes. And it just kind of reminds me like, no, you can do whatever you put your mind to now because you made it through that or you you are a black woman in the profession, which is not the most common thing or a really small percentage, but being able to, in Detroit specifically, work with so many black women as clients, I think is such a unique experience that is incredible and something that energizes me beyond belief. I didn't even know that I needed that as much as I really enjoy working with the entrepreneurs here who happen to be a lot of black women. (laughs) Um, But It's just a reminder that the city here is different or on a different page and we're working different ways and making spaces that are welcoming and inclusive to everyone, but are still, I think, just really important to be beautifully designed. And for a brand like the Lip Bar, she has to use this space for quite a while. It's a representation of her brand. So being able to kind of execute on and fire on those different cylinders has been just amazing. But I mean alone, I should probably mention this, that Kimberly Dowdell went to Cornell. We didn't overlap, but she graduated in 2006. I came in 2007. And just knowing her alone and being able to use her as a resource through my own college experience. And then we both came to Detroit together, but keeping up with her was one of the most important career moves, I think, that I could make just because I think one of her favorite things to say, and it's a quote, I don't know who said it, but is you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. Um, And me being able to see her or me being able to see Allison Williams or me being able to see Gabrielle Bullock or any different number of, or even there's tons of different 
women, black women or women in general, who existed so that I could exist in this right. profession. And it's not that I saw their face and I never talked to them. These are mentors of mine who are willing to put in the work and spend the time to make sure that I'm doing okay and making progress. So that investment is just something that I think everybody has to pay for it in one way or another. I think Detroit also in some ways just has a very interesting way of helping me realize how important those figures were in my life because I just didn't think of it before coming here and just understanding how important that is for others to see. So I don't know. I'm super grateful for those experiences and those connections and mentors just because without them, I really don't know. I'd probably be a psychologist. Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. I think your story is such a great reminder of how important the power of connection is and that we can't wish to have a more diverse group of designers in Detroit if we're not all actively doing our part to connect the future designer to the folks who can mentor them and help develop them. And that they, right. they need to be able to, you know, I, I love that quote from Kimberly, to be able to see themselves mm-hmm. in that future. I think you've really helped connect those dots that if we care about a different kind of talent pipeline to fuel inclusive design down the road, we have to start today and we have to be really intentional about it. Right. I just remember going to school with people who either their parents were architects or they were heavily trained for a while. or They were exposed so early that it's not like they, I'm sure they need mentorship and they need the same level of support, but they really just have an advantage right. early, very early in the process, you have that advantage. And I think the goal of all of these programs and all of the effort and the mentorship and the sponsorship and all of these different ways to be an advocate for someone or all of these different ways to support someone is really to just give them the chance to have that advantage, to put everybody on the same level playing field where if you get to school, you're not totally lost like I was sometimes, or when you get to any conversation or you learn to appreciate your own built environment in a different way as you develop, as opposed to you're already developed and you're trying to figure out a way to kind of recourse. I think that's super important just to understand how early you have to get to people so that they can make it and not feel some weird disadvantage along the way that can also just kind of psychologically not it can just be inhibiting in different ways, which I think right. is uh, a whole different conversation. But, yeah. yeah, we could probably go on for another half hour. Um, <laughs> well, I know I'm looking forward to seeing what else you do in Detroit over hopefully a very long career here. And just really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. Thank you, guys. This is very, very exciting. Here to talk more about Detroit's design legacy is Andrew Blauvelt, director of the Cranbrook Art Museum. Before joining Cranbrook in 2015, Andrew served as a senior curator of architecture and design and the head of research and publishing at the Walker Art Center. With over 20 years as a practicing graphic designer, his work has received over 100 design awards and has been published and exhibited in North America, Europe, and Asia. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And how you ended up here in Cranbrook? Well, it kind of started with Cranbrook. (laughs) So I attended Cranbrook Academy of Art in the mid to late 80s in the design department, studying there under Catherine and Michael McCoy. It was one department then, so it had product and furniture and graphic design as part of it. 
and then I went off and became a graphic designer and then somehow ended up in the museum world <laughs> for oh, quite a while. So I was at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis for about 17 years, first as the design director and then later as a curator and administrator. And then an opportunity came up at the Cranbrook Art Museum to direct that. So I came back and that was in 2015. And I've done stints as teaching as a professor of design at several different universities here in, in Europe. So that's kind of <laughs> in a nutshell. Was there something about your time at Cranbrook and in Detroit that we think influenced that path? I mean, you've had a very research-focused career, right? Yeah, I think one of the reasons that I said yes to Cranbrook, though, was because I had been coming back occasionally. So I was like an alum kind of advisor to the Art Academy from like 2008 to like 2015. So they would have meetings here in Detroit. And so following the Detroit story, I guess, since probably financial crisis till now has been part of that. But just being aware of what was happening in the city, particularly its art scene, cultural scene. Are there major differences between the art scene and design scene now in Detroit versus when you were a student here that really strike you? Yeah. In the 80s, the downtown area was, I mean, we went downtown and visiting different parts of Detroit. And of course, as a design student, you're linked into kind of like all the suppliers and all of that as part of the whole city and metro area back then. So we would have these excursions and so have some connection to Detroit. And there was definitely an art scene um, in Detroit at the time. This probably was kind of towards the end of sort of what people call like the Cass Corridor folks, things like that. So there was definitely some connection between Cranbrook and the city, although it's pretty far away from the city. So it's kind of on the edge of this metro area. So that was always a challenge to that distance to be able to really utilize it. But we would see films and lectures at the DIA and things like that. So there was always this kind of connection between both places. Everything is just different now. I mean, there's just a lot of transformation of different parts of the city. There's a lot more galleries now downtown. The galleries back then were out here in Birmingham, I think, more. Mm -hmm. So the scene's has shifted <laughs> kind of dramatically. When you think about Cranbrook, both as a, a student there and now as a, you know one of the, the leaders, you know, the director of the museum, and I know I've read a little bit about some of the research work you're doing related to Cranbrook's historical legacy, and it is a unique institution within our region. Can you talk to us a little bit about what role Cranbrook has played, especially in helping to make Detroit a city of design, a region of design? Sure, yeah. So a lot of people associate Cranbrook with design and architecture and that kind of sector, also craft and art as well. So Cranbrook is kind of, <laughs> it's so small that we, it has a weird, um, it has an international reputation, the Art Academy. It's really unique because in this day and age, it's only a graduate school. So it offers like a Master of Fine Arts and Master of Architecture degrees to about between 120, 150 students a year. So it's very, very tiny, but has had a really major impact on all of the fields that it covers. So it's kind of a strange thing where people in Europe would know Cranbrook through the art and the art academy. 
But here locally, the school, the private school that's here is really large. It's one of the largest private schools in the country. But Cranbrook's known basically. The Art Academy started in 1932. And so it was a hothouse of birthing kind of modernism in America. So all the things that we associate with like mid-century design have some kind of root at Cranbrook. So it was really a hotbed for thinking about modern design, furniture, people like Florence Knoll or Harry Bertoia, Charles and Ray Eames were students here, and Charles Eames was a faculty member here before they moved to California. There's just a ton of other people that are part of that. History, Arrow Saarinen was the son of Eliel Saarinen, who was the master architect of Cranbrook Campus. So he was also an instructor in terms of architecture here. So there have been these kind of legendary figures through design, which was at the same moment that Detroit, back in the kind of heyday of the automobile in the 1920s, in the early part of the turn of the century, Detroit was the kind of Silicon Valley of the world. And that's why there's all this fantastic architecture here, especially downtown. The Cranbrook campus is a historic landmark. When I was a student, their design department is, you know, top ranked in the world, um, doing really radical experimental work in graphic and product design. And then now it's kind of known a lot for furniture, doing a lot of experimental furniture work. There's a whole history of chair designers from Cranbrook, product designers. There's so many different design philosophies that emerge from Cranbrook that even we are not fully aware of because of the long legacy here at the school. Just stuff like people would not believe, like early design thinking and innovation and strategy that emerged in the field in the 1980s that now is part and parcel of a lot of business school Mm -hmm. and has now moved out beyond that to the world at large. There are still some key people involved in that from the early 70s here at Cranbrook. So it's had this long kind of tradition and history to it. The biggest change is that Cranbrook has always attracted a lot of international students as well since the very beginning. So not everyone settled in this area over time, but I think in the last 10 years, many more students have been settling in Southeast Michigan. And yeah. you can feel that. In the oh, absolutely. Scene. I think I feel like many of the deans of local architecture programs and uh, different professors or owners of companies they either trace their education back to Cranbrook or the College of Creative Studies or someplace like right. that. But there's definitely, you feel the Cranbrook presence locally for sure. With the art museum, I mean, it's an interesting challenge. I know you've done some really fun things since you've been here. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, it's you're constrained by the walls and the location. You have a whole region, you know, to communicate with and interact with. And so how do you do that? Yeah, so we have like a two-pronged approach. There's what we do here in our galleries at the museum here, and then what we do mostly in terms of the city of Detroit is where most of our public projects have been. And so coming here, that was like going back to the Walker, which is also, it's more of an urban museum on the edge of downtown. I was there during their building expansion, so it closed for a little more than a year to the public. And so we had to think about how we would do programs and events around the city outside of the museum. And so um, having that kind of experience has been helpful in terms of thinking about how we can engage audiences beyond our community here in the kind of northern suburbs to partner and do projects in the city of Detroit. So it kind of really started, I think, in earnest in 2015 with Nick Cave which was pretty much citywide, but also included exhibition of his work here at Cranbrook. 
art museum. And then other projects like the Truth Booth, which followed it, which actually was more of a nomadic portable video recording studio, if you will, (laughs) inflatable one that went to different communities, about 12 different communities in Detroit, and then also traveled to like Dearborn and Flint Mm -hmm. to capture these testimonials, basically, that were knitted together in terms of a video installation here at the museum and then a film. And then we have a new project that we're doing this summer called Material Detroit, which is part of a big exhibition here at the museum called Landlord Colors that's looking at five different international art scenes since the 60s, places that have experienced social or economic precarity during that time. So contemporary Athens since the financial crisis in 2008, Detroit post-67 and up to the present, embargoed Cuba, also South Korea under military rule in the 70s and 80s, and then forgetting one, oh, Italy in the 1960s and 70s, kind of in the years of radical experimentation in art, and then there are years of domestic terrorism. Wow. So are you able to share any insights from this work that's coming? I can't wait to see it. Yeah, no, it's going to be, I think it's the biggest project we've done. So hopefully we'll survive. Yeah, I'm sure you will. <laughs> We're small and scrappy here. Yeah, that's the Detroit way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very Detroit up here. Even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yes, we'll have these uh, amazing artworks from around the country. And again, we're looking at these artworks through the lens of materiality. So there's different stories and different kind of themes that emerge. Like Detroit is kind of a place with this, a lot of excess material having to do with the urban condition, mm-hmm. whereas embargoed Cuba is like a scarcity of material. So it really is ultimately about artistic innovation mm-hmm. in the context of these different economic and social and cultural climates. So there's different weird through lines, like there's a lot of artworks that deal with stones and rocks, and that can be a different thing. It might be like a rock in one culture. It might be debris or concrete debris in Detroit, for example, or the idea of rust and what does rust really signify. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these different interesting material (laughs) angles that'll be part of it. And then for Detroit, we're just partnering with Arts Black and Sidewalk Festival. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Yeah. So it's a series of site-specific art installations combined with events and performances that'll happen around different parts of the city. And that takes place basically over the summer period. So this show opens in June uh, here at Cranbrook and goes through early October. I mean, that's going to be really amazing. And I think Sidewalk Festival has such a great audience and uh, mm-hmm. local connection. And is that part of your strategy when you're trying to connect the museum and maybe some of these mm-hmm. concepts that aren't highly present in people's everyday lives in the city? Right. <laughs> is it through connectors like Sidewalk Festival and, and Arts Black? Oh, definitely. Because that's one of the, along with some other projects I did at the Walker, we normally partnered with more than 100 community groups in any given year. So it's just, you know, the basic kind of idea that makes sense is that through partnership, you can expand your reach and you will encounter new ideas and new audiences that you probably wouldn't have if you had not done right. encountered those partnerships. And, and then also working, it enables you to work more closely in a more authentic way with different communities because every community is different. And you can't be an expert, of course, in every community, but you need to 
be listening and working with people who are. So that's a key component of trying to do contemporary work that's situated in different communities. That's really wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to it. The, I remember the Nick Cave performances, you know, three years ago. And I think every time you know, just you're just building on it. Uh, <laughs> um, Andrew, it's every year, you, something bigger and better. So this will be fun. Yeah, I think it'll be exciting to have, we're particularly exciting to have kind of an international context and dialogue around things that maybe Detroiters are familiar with, like some of the artists that from the Detroit area already, but to have them in this international context, Mm -hmm. we think it's an interesting twist. Well, that's been a major part of the kind of connection that we've been trying to promote through the UNESCO City of Design designation for Detroit. It was that idea that through global connections, we can learn and we don't have to be exactly the same. And sometimes we're learning from similarities and sometimes we're learning from differences. Are there trends that you're watching as you're thinking about the next show or the next thing to be studying? Are there trends in design that you're watching that we should be watching too? I think for the future here, like if it was specific to this area, I kind of think, well, you know, also being from Minnesota, you know, we're part of the Great Lakes. Fresh water and water and water economies in the future are going to be super vital. And of course, water is a hot topic and a very divisive one locally. So I think that would be an interesting area. Mm-hmm. You know, water as a right, clean water, restorative conditions around the Great Lakes, being able to leverage that. And what does it mean geopolitically to have be sitting on what will eventually be the new oil? You're right. It is an issue even today in terms of people's access to clean water and just the aging infrastructure and the impacts of stormwater drainage fees and that kind of thing. And there's a lot. I mean, it seems part of Detroit's historical context has been about being a city that has look to the future and try to experiment, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. So like when I first got here, it seemed like leapfrogging, the idea of leapfrogging technology and design, well, really in culture, but are there enough advances in AI, robotics, systems, uh, ubiquitous computing in order to circumvent the kind of 19th century idea of infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And that's where Detroit could be a role player because of, you know, various conditions that it's had to suffer under in terms of the city's history, just even lighting, for example, or things like that. Right. So there's always this possibility. I think a lot of people several years ago were looking, you know, is this a case study for whatever, like all the rest of what cities will have to face, at least in the U.S., as time marches on. So it would be nice to see more experiments in a best sense of that word. Right. Um, <laughs> prototyping and Prototype, learning our lessons yeah. from <laughs> what doesn't work as well to try to create an even better condition. That's the idea of leapfrogging, that you can just move beyond this current predicament and solve it in a completely new way. Certainly autonomous vehicles have some potential here, and it has a natural link to the auto industry, I think, in terms of how they should be thinking about not cars, but rather mobility. Right. Of people and things in general. And so there's certainly people working on that. But then the question is, are they coming? Is it coming only from sort of corporate R&D sectors or is it also coming from more publicly held think tanks? You know, the other thing I forgot to mention, which is kind of important, that we added a new design department at Cranbrook. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Tell us all about it. So they, we uh, created a department of 4D design, the fourth dimension, which is really time. But it's really about emerging technologies. And Carla Diana is the new head of our new artist in residence for 4D. And it'll have its first class in the fall. 
And this could be any kinds of levels of interaction. So it might be highly digital, but also it might not be, but we suspect it'll be more digitally focused. Diane is interested in really all sorts of things, but she has like one sector dealing with robotics, but also augmenting certain technologies, adapting technologies for kind of more physical objects because she has a product design history. And she's also an alum from Cranbrook from around 2000s, I think. That's wonderful. Um, Yeah. So we're excited about having that new department to add to our 2D and 3D design department. So I think that'll be something to watch. Well, we definitely will be. You know, just as we we start to wrap up here, thinking a little bit about this idea of inclusive design and how we create places and systems and things that allow more people to participate in society. Is there anything from the research you've been doing or books you're reading, big thoughts that you're having that, uh, you know, might inspire us? Yeah, I think you're kind of at it. You're kind of leapfrog because like um, in the history of inclusive design back in the day, (laughs) that was called like universal design. Right. It meant a certain kind of thing. So people with different physical abilities, for example, or in terms of architect, you know, access to buildings, that kind of thing, or, or products that could be designed in such a way that anyone could use them with different mobility issues, for instance. But now I think the interesting thing has been added on are these social vectors like class and income or gender, mm-hmm. all of these other vectors that are part of that analysis now or that I don't analysis may be too strong a word, but the way that we begin to think about inclusivity, particularly in places like Detroit. So it takes on a whole different kind of set of meanings and set of priorities and importance. So even within certain demographics, I wish I knew more about this project, but we just will be doing our education department here at the museum. will be working with teens, I believe, in different neighborhoods in Detroit to help create a process of more inclusive voices being heard in the development of communities because typically those voices, that age group is not part of who's surveyed and included in the development. So I think that's kind of a little example of something that we're engaged with that has to deal with these notions. What's kind of interesting about Detroit is you have different scales of projects going on. So you have really massive, very public ones, and then maybe even governmental. And then you have smaller, even grassroots entrepreneurial endeavors in various neighborhoods. So the range is nice to have. It's just like, can one inform the other or no. Yeah. <laughs> it's really the question. But it's nice that I can think of things that are here that express both of those dualities. Well, maybe at some point we'll inspire you to curate a show on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you've just heard, feel free to share this episode on social media via email or any other means. For more info on DesignCore Detroit, visit designcore.org and search the hashtag designcoredet. That's design, C-O-R-E-D-E-T. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you'll join us for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Olu and Company, edited by Jag in Detroit and recorded at Motor City Women Studios. 
Music by Diamondstein, courtesy of Assemble Sound. Special thanks to Jessica Maloof of Design Core Detroit. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, part of the College for Creative Studies.